Welcome to our third installment of our study of Christianity and liberalism. Still not into the book yet, but aiming to do the historical background. I have so much to tell you this morning and next week. Um, I feel really overwhelmed in trying to communicate this amount of information to you, so we'll see how we do. Uh, I hope that as you move along, and I'm, I'm telling you stories and history that you're jotting down some thoughts, because I would love to have further conversation with you about these things. And I might come and ask you, hey, what'd you think about? Uh, but let me open us up in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day. Thank you for the blessing it is to be called into your presence and to gather with the saints of God to sing praises to your name and to sit under the authority of your word to be shaped by it. And Lord, as we come this morning to reflect on your providence, your ruling in all of history, which shows us both things that you're doing to advance the glory of Christ and showing us also the opposition of the evil one. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us insight, that you would make us circumspect, that you would help us to be doctrinally aware, that you would grow our understanding, and we pray that your name would be glorified, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's always hard to pick up really at any point in history and explain how did we get here? Uh, what has happened? And we're trying to do that to acclimate you, as it were, to this study of Christianity and liberalism. And I just wanting to plop into the present situation of Machen. We want to understand its context. But as we set the context, it's a bit like the book, <clears throat> If You Give the Mouse a Cookie. Um, this introduction on theological issues will lead to us wondering, well, how did that idea develop? And where did we go off the rails? Well, even as I say that, let me note two points. And you really got to keep this in mind the whole time. Christ is always building his church and Satan is always causing trouble. That's true if we're looking at the first century church in, say, Corinth, or we're looking at Machen's Day, or we're looking at our own. Now, the source of trouble, what we might call the flashpoint, the doctrinal controversy, is always changing, but the devil is always busy, and that's what's important to see. Well, I'm going to bring you up to speed, or begin to bring you up to speed, in 19th century controversy, religious controversy, as we try to figure out how some of these ideas started. Now, we reflected upon this in the philosophical realm last week, trying to prepare the way for us. And as I really look at the theological landscape, I can't hunt down every errant idea. But let me make it clear that while the Reformation, which we celebrate, the Reformation brought an overhaul of unbiblical thinking, a return to Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice, and it produced champions of thought, the Reformation also produced a group that has been known as the Radicals, the Radical Reformation. That's a study for an entirely different time. Those who, in throwing off unbiblical church tradition, really threw off everything. They were anti-Trinitarians. There were those arguing for new revelations by the Spirit, as though we are in apostolic times. They were anti-credalists, those mixing Christianity with philosophy, and again, these problems have always existed. The philosophy and its the, the spirit of the age, we might say, is always infecting the church. That's a problem at 
Corinth with Greek thinking. But as we think about the Reformation period and the post-Reformation period, what did places like Roman Catholic France and Anglo-Catholic England do with those who had different views? They started persecuting them. And where did the persecuted people go? Well, they went to the Netherlands, maybe Geneva, maybe Germany, but increasingly they came to the New World. Now, those making their way to America were not just nonconformists, those outside of what, what we would call the Anglican establishment, like Presbyterians, Congregationalists, Dutch and German Reformed, Lutherans. The radicals also came. Now, I don't have a list up here of the radicals, though Quakers is on here. Arians, Socinians, Quakers, Shakers, Illuminists, Mennonites, Anabaptists, and those with a whole host of strange views about the personal work of Christ, about Christ's return, along with religious skeptics, deists, and rationalists. America was truly a melting pot of ideas. And while the First Great Awakening brought a stirring of religion in the colonies, a predominant religious concern overtaking the nation, along with a couple of other groups, Methodists and Moravians, all these aberrations, these radical ideas from historic Christianity were still hanging around. And that's going to become important. Now, we're Presbyterian here at our church, and I really have to focus myself on Presbyterian church history, though you're going to see it's going to invade in other areas as we move. But Presbyterianism began to make inroads in America in the 1600s, but the first presbytery wasn't formed until 1706 in Philadelphia, largely among Scotch-Irish people. Now, Presbyterianism in America wrestled through controversy in the 18th century, and the controversy is over things like, what will be our doctrinal standard? The Westminster Confession of Faith was adopted in 1729, a famous thing called the Adopting Act. Don't you love really clever names? The Adopting Act. Uh, and there would be a question as to how we would submit to that confessional standard. Further, would men be for the Great Awakening, though maybe critical of some of the excesses of it, or against the Awakening? Questions existed like, how do we view education in relationship to ministry? And what's the relationship between doctrine and evangelistic endeavor? And there were different answers to these questions, creating fault lines, and those fault lines further develop as we move into the 19th century. One of the fault lines you can see right here, because in 1741 there's already a split in Presbyterianism, and then there's a reunion in 1718. And during this period of the late 1700s, what's going on in American history? The Revolution. So prior to the Revolution, there was a, a union of thought against the attack on civil and religious liberty that seemed to bring everybody together. Uh, one Hessian soldier, famously the German mercenaries who were fighting with the British, one Hessian soldier said in fighting the colonists, call this war by whatever name you may, only call it not an American rebellion. It is nothing more or less than an Irish-Scotch-Presbyterian 
rebellion. Um, well, after the victory and the establishment of the United States, the Presbyterians held their first general assembly, making a national church in 1789. But with that national church and independence of the state, which was really a, a new thing, new problems arose. And one of the big problems was this, how to manage the massive growth in the nation and how to provide ministers in that massive growth. Uh, we could take Kentucky for a sampling of the growth in about 1770. Um, I don't know how much we can trust these numbers. There were under a thousand people that were being counted in Kentucky. And 20 years later, we've got over 200,000 people in that area. So uh, what do you do with all those people? How do you get them the gospel? Practical question. So here was, here was the way to do it. 1801, the plan of union. It's a commitment of Congregationalists and Presbyterians to work together on the frontier. Now, uh, a seminary classmate of mine wrote a paper on this, and he called it Congratarians and Presbogationals. Um, because you have this strange mixture of these two groups trying to work together, and it was argued that they were basically the same except for church government. And this was a bit of a pragmatic solution to solve any denominational rivalry on the mission field, and the mission field at the time, this may surprise you if you don't know your American history very well, it, the mission field is uh, New York, upstate New York in particular, and the Northwest Territory. There are a lot of states that are going to be there, but there are not a lot of people here, and a lot of people are moving that direction. And this is the late 1700s, beginning in the 1800s. So it wasn't that long ago. Now, in this union, we have an early iteration of the mindset that's going to gain great traction in the 19th century. And here's the mindset. Doctrine divides, ministry unites. Doctrine divides, ministry unites. Or if I put it in the phraseology of the times, evangelism, getting the gospel to the frontier, is more important than doctrine itself. Doctrinal innovation is acceptable as long as there's a harvest of souls. And this is a pragmatic approach. Success is the goal. And it doesn't matter what truth you're selling, we might say. So there was a, a lessening concern for what the truth was that we're conveying in all its particulars. Now, this union between Presbyterians and Congregationalists undermined the arguments for church government as though they're not important, but it also created... Uh, problems regarding con a, a subscription to the confession of faith. Um, David Hall has written a book, actually, The Practice of Confessional Scrip Subscription. And there were different views about how we submit to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And you have a group that will end up being called the Latitudinarians. It's your word for the day. The Latitudinarians. Does that sound like a positive term? Great latitude will be granted to you in interpreting the confession. That will be important more next week, but doctrinal provision is being downplayed while some are trying to emphasize, no, we need to strictly subscribe to the standards or we need to at least have a very tight confessional orthodoxy. Now, this union created a very interesting situation where, say, the preacher was Presbyterian, but the church was congregational. And those church leaders who were congregational who have not taken vows to uphold the Westminster Standards, 
they were allowed to come and vote in Presbytery. Think of it like this. Tell me if you've heard of this problem before. Non-citizens being allowed, while they haven't expressed loyalty to the United States, voting. Does that bother you? Uh, Well, this bothered people in the church, that people who haven't taken vows to uphold our doctrinal standards are voting on matters of preeminent importance. And again, this plan of union assumed that everyone was on the same page about all other Christian doctrine, except church government. Well, that simply was not true. Among the Congregationalists, uh, serious doctrinal issues are coming up, uh, spreading like a contagious disease as the Presbyterians and Congregationalists are interacting with one another. Yeah, uh, the doctrinal discussion brewing was about the doctrine of original sin. So we have to take a deep dive on the doctrine of original sin. The Westminster Confession of Faith is clear that Adam's guilt and sin are imputed to us. He is, Adam is, our covenant representative. Here's the language of the Shorter Catechism, question 18. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell? Answer. The sinfulness of that estate wherein two men fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, meaning you lack it, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, <clears throat> together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Now, where do we get this doctrine of original sin? Get it from Romans 5 in particular, uh, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And that little phrase, because all sinned, is then further explained as Paul goes on. And here's the question. Did all sin because they actually committed a transgression? Or did all sin in Adam when he sinned? How does Paul answer the question? Well, he keeps going. Skip down to Romans 5, verse 15. Many died, how? Through one man's trespass. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. And then verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We don't have to be taught to sin, influenced to sin, shown how to sin. We emerge sinful. R.C. Sproul said this so many times, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You tracking with me? Let me repeat that. We are not sinners because we sin. And before that moment, we weren't sinners. We sin because we're sinners. We emerge guilty and subject to death, to condemnation, as Romans 5.18 is saying, on account of our covenant head, Adam, and his sin. Now the objection that will be raised wasn't a new idea, but it will be raised in the early 19th century is, that's not fair. That we should be condemned because of something somebody else did. 
So some began to tinker with this doctrine. And there was an argument that sin was inherited rather than imputed. It was passed down from one generation to the next, but it wasn't actually credited to your account. Now, this idea rejected covenant theology. Let me try to explain this, this picture. Inherited sin. So Adam sins, and then he passes it to Cain, and Cain to Enoch, and Enoch to Irad, and eventually down to you. Versus imputed sin. Adam sinned, and everybody gets the corrupted nature because of Adam's sin. It's a very different approach. Now, if sin is simply an inherited problem, like you might get a crooked nose from your daddy, then are you responsible? No, you're not responsible. You didn't do it. You just have a a crooked nose because your daddy had a crooked nose and it's not your fault. So how then can we be held accountable for something that someone else did? Well, we couldn't, but Romans 5.18 says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. God is holding us accountable for the sin of Adam. And if we weren't guilty, that wouldn't make any sense. Further, this view suggested of inherited sin that our corruption wasn't a corruption of nature. Are we totally depraved? That is, is every faculty in us, mind, conscience, affections, will, have they all been touched by sin? Maybe we're not as bad as we possibly could be. Maybe total depraved is not the best way to say it. Radical depravity might be a little clearer. But is every area in some way affected by sin? Well, yes, that's our doctrine. But it began to be argued that man's nature isn't corrupt. We have the natural faculties to do God's will, but we've somehow lost the ability. And this begins to sound like we're not dead in sin, we're sick with sin. Our mind is really fine. Our thoughts and our feelings, they're good, but our body is just weak with a sickness. And we just need some gospel antibiotics to overcome the disease, but we don't actually need resurrection from the dead. Well, these errors led to other errors. And the idea that started being floated, again, it wasn't a new idea, the idea starting to be floated was we only become sinners when we sin. We only become sinners when we sin. Before that moment, before your first act of moral corruption, what are you? You're innocent. You're not actually corrupt. You're you're pure. But then you quickly step into corruption. Now, this perspective, brethren, has no explanation for the inclination in the heart to sin. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord looks at man before the flood and He sees that man's wickedness is great in the earth and that, listen to this language, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's pervasive. <clears throat> what about Jeremiah seventeen nine? The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? When Jesus is talking about defilement, you know, the issue of washing the hands that the Pharisees and scribes are upset, your disciples don't wash their hands. This wasn't a hygiene question. This was a ceremonial defilement question. And what does Jesus say? Where does defilement come from? Is it from the outside in? 
No, it's from the inside out. Your, your heart is corrupt and the defilement comes out of you because your heart is already corrupt. So this collection of ideas then gets advanced even further by a man named Nathaniel Taylor, who is a professor of divinity at Yale in the 1820s. <clears throat> he developed what is called the new divinity, uh, the new school, uh, New Haven theology. Sorry, that got cut off. New Haven theology. <clears throat> you would have to ask the question, is it, is it really a good term to call your theology new? Charles Hodge actually famously said with regard at Princeton, with regard to the Princeton Theological Review, this journal he wrote for like 50-something years, Princeton never had a new idea. <clears throat> now, I don't know that was quite totally accurate, but the idea is we're building on the historic Christian faith. We're not like inventing new stuff. We're not trying to bring new things out. Well, that's not at all Nathaniel Taylor's approach. Taylor is training ministers, both Congregationalists and Presbyterians, and here's what he begins to deny. It's a long list. He denies the depravity of man's heart. The human heart, he argues, is good and only falls into depravity as a result of your choices. <clears throat> he argues that there's nothing in you inherently that pulls you to sin. Sin is inevitable, but it's not necessary. So we are starting to conceive the possibility that you could be without sin. He argues you don't have an inherited sinful nature from Adam. Man's will is not in bondage to sin. I hope you're thinking about Jesus saying, if the Son sets you sword, free. Oh, free. That must mean there's some kind of bondage, right? Some type of slavery. No, but... Nathaniel is saying, no, 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 you're not in bondage to sin. Your will retains the power to the contrary. Your will has the power to suddenly go a new direction. You have the power to effect your own new birth. You want to be born again. You're, you're moving yourself towards the new birth already. You just need a little help. And the Spirit of God doesn't sovereignly act and awaken you from the dead what the Spirit of God does is just give you and your will a little extra oomph. The Spirit is like the help of a friend. He, he appeals to you, but He doesn't actually change your heart. You change yourself. You don't need resurrection. You need persuasion. You need strong appeals, not supernatural power. You need to respond to logical arguments but you don't actually need to experience a new creation. This is getting you upset. It's getting me upset. Taylor, having dismissed the universal depravity of man and Adam, he also changed the way we needed to understand the work of Christ. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 um, and elsewhere make it clear that the imputation of Adam's sin is inextricably tied to the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Right? Through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, but through the obedience of the one man, Christ, the many were made righteous. So if you lose one concept of imputation, what happens to the other one? It starts to disappear. 
Taylor explains this. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus actually didn't pay a debt of sin and credit us with righteousness. Our sin wasn't taken and laid on Jesus so that He could pay a strict legal payment to satisfy the particular justice of God. Rather, Jesus just went to the cross to demonstrate God's moral government of the universe. Sin is bad, and sin deserves punishment. Now what does this view do to the justice of God? It just tosses it aside. Because now every sin doesn't actually demand the justice of God to be satisfied. So Taylor said, look, when you see Jesus taking punishment to show you God is displeased with sin, you're just influenced to flee from sin. And you're influenced to do what honors God. Jesus then is really just a moral example to show you to, how to follow God. This is a lot to take in, isn't it? I told you, it's a lot to get through. None of these ideas are new, but they're spreading like wildfire. Now, why is that? Well, most likely due to the spirit of the age, the Enlightenment, where there was, you heard the, the creed of the Enlightenment last week, dare to know. Like you just had the power within yourself to raise yourself up to great heights. There's optimism about man's nature. There's also an emerging democratic idea, and we like democracy, but it can have some ideas associated with that, that are bad. And this is the idea. I choose for myself, and I can do whatever I put my mind to do. Well, that's a problem if you believe that spiritually, isn't it? Because can you just convert yourself? Taylor's seeming to argue that maybe you can. Well, I've taken us nearly to 1830. <laughs> now I need to back up to the revivals at the turn of the 19th century and the Second Great Awakening. Camp meetings. How many of you have heard of camp meetings? I grew up a Methodist, so camp meeting was a big thing. And I learned something in the study for this class that camp meetings actually came from Presbyterian communion seasons. In Scotland... Once a year, they would have the Lord's Supper. I'm not commenting on that practice, but that's what they did. Once a year, they'd have the Lord's Supper, and they have, would have protracted meetings over the course of about four or five days, preaching, 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 until you had the Lord's Supper. And then Monday, the day after the, the Lord's Supper, you would have another exhortation of preaching. Well, this started happening on the frontier. Presbyterians are gathering for a communion season, they're inviting other denominations to participate, though they might not actually take the Lord's Supper when they were there, but they're coming to hear the preaching. It's, you know, it's Presbyterianism out on the frontier. What else do you have to do? Might as well go hear some people preach. So we have these two famous communion seasons, which later will be called camp meetings. At Red, Riv Red River, this is in Kentucky, in June of 1800, where there were four days of services associated with the Lord's Supper. There are five Presbyterians there. Uh, James McGreedy is one of them, this guy, uh, and uh, a Methodist who's with them. And then another famous camp meetings, communion season, at Cane Ridge, uh, where Barton Stone is pastor. And they are, again, having this great communion season. There are 18 Presbyterians at that one along with some Baptists and Methodists preaching maybe to as many as 10,000 people? Uh, that's a guess. So at Red River, this one, in June 1800, here's what happened. Story time. 
James McGreedy was preaching the gospel. And when he was preaching, a woman cried out, or better, she shrieked. Now, that freaked everybody out a little bit. And after the servants, it was just silence. And then the Methodist, John McGee, said, well, okay, it's going to be my turn to preach. So he comes up in the pulpit, and he opens up with a statement declaring the greatness of God. And then the woman who had cried out in the service started encouraging others to cry out. So now we got a bunch of shrieking going on. What are you supposed to do? Well, McGee, he comes back down from the pulpit and he starts walking among the people. You see all these people falling down? You see in this picture all these, it has the ladies. Sorry, ladies, this is not an attack on you. It's just what happened. Um, a bunch of ladies gathering. McGee comes down, he's walking among the people and again, the Presbyterians who are there, they come and they warn him against encouraging emotionalism. He doesn't listen, and he starts yelling and shouting and exhorting and stirring the people up into a frenzy, and they all start responding, responding with shouts and cries and collapsing. And the falling down, which you see up here, that continued in other meetings. Now, some Presbyterians in particular sought to stop this, to preach on the true marks of conviction of sin, which is not just falling down the floor, but repenting. With grief and hatred of your sin, yes, there is an emotional component, but a turning from sin. And they started speaking about how those who were falling down and shouting were actually going back to the world. They weren't repenting. But various ministers among Presbyterians and Baptists and Methodists kept encouraging this emotionalism as a mark of the work of the Spirit. Some started actually claiming that repentance is shown by collapsing. And then ministers started assigning people to walk through the crowds at these meetings and count the number of people collapsing as the number of people who were converted. Further, the pro-revivalists started regarding anyone against all this emotionalism as unspiritual men. You guys are just not interested in the Holy Spirit. You guys are not interested in seeing people saved. Well, John Lyle, who is a Presbyterian minister, speaking against the excesses, he writes down what he's seeing. He's seeing preachers call the people of God to cry aloud in the middle of the sermons because God can hear everyone at the same time. One witness says, tell me what you think of this, the noise was like the roar of Niagara with shrieks and shouts that rent the very heavens. What about Hebrews 12, worshiping God in reverence and awe? What about 1 Corinthians 14? In the worship of God, everything must be done. This is often known as the Presbyterian verse. It is, and it's a Bible verse. Decently and in order. <laughs> Slaying in the Spirit. Yeah, It. yes. This is when that really starts. Uh, Richard uh, McNamara, who's a Presbyterian preacher, wasn't troubled by the excesses. He's encouraging it. And the scene of confusion that can scarce be put into human language. He, I'm troubled by it, but he isn't. Okay, so that's Red River and the associations with Red River. Then we come to Cane Ridge. Again, 
Barton Stones, the Presbyterian minister at Cambridge, Kentucky, 1801. He was reared a Presbyterian. He was converted under McNamere's preaching. Um, McNamere will later be called a frontier heretic, the shaker apostle. <clears throat> but Barton Stone maintained great doubts, even though he grew up a Presbyterian, great doubts about the Westminster Standards. Um, the ideas I've already mentioned floating around at Yale, they're, they're really trickling into the whole nation. Uh, in fact, in 1803, the Presbyterian Synod of Kentucky was about to examine McNamara and some guys with him and how they were all embracing Arminianism. And instead of being challenged about their aberrant doctrinal ideas, they left and formed their own presbytery. McNamara claimed that he was seeing visions, speaking prophetically, being carried away in the Spirit, and this was without question the Spirit's work. The pro-revivalists claim the doctrines of the Westminster Standards are just being a hindrance to revival. We just need to ditch them. Men have the ability to receive the gospel without a prior work of regeneration. And then McNamara and two others ended up becoming shakers. If you don't know what a shaker is, I don't have time to explain. They were called shakers. That's a pejorative term because they're dancing and shaking in the middle of worship. They start embracing a woman, a 19th century lady named Anne Lee, that she's prophesying and claiming that perfect holiness is possible and that she is the embodiment of God. Barton Stone, the minister at Cambridge, and those with him went off and started the Christian church. Have you guys heard of the Christian church that's still around? We have them in Douglas County. Uh, where they denounced all denominations and all creeds. In the 1830s, they joined up with Alexander Campbell's Disciples of Christ. You heard of the Disciples of Christ? Yeah. And they had a slogan. In essentials, unity. In opinions, liberty. In all things, charity. Sounds great, doesn't it? But what are the essentials? Who gets to decide? What are the core things of Christianity? These are going to be major issues that Machen is going to fight about 90 years from this point. But in the case of the disciples of Christ, the movement, the essentials were, we don't have any creeds, but we got three things. I hope you all see that that doesn't make any sense. You can't say you don't have any creeds, but you got three things. Three things. These are the three things. Jesus is the Son of God. There's no Trinitarian theology. Christians should have communion every Sunday and baptism by immersion. Those are the three things. Stone would later reject the Trinity, reject Jesus' equality with God, and he has no explanation of, as to what Jesus did on the cross and how it is we're saved. In 1804, the Colum uh, Cumberland Presbytery, uh, which is in Logan County, Kentucky, uh, became a source of great controversy. Uh, James McGreedy, he had been critical of the excesses of the revival, the camp meetings, but he wanted them to keep going. And then several men were presented for licensure who rejected original sin, rejected the bondage of the will, rejected the doctrine of election, rejected the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and they started really taking a, a me and my Bible approach. They wanted to have men go out and preach who were not trained in theology. And this is just building and building and building until about 1810. That little group is told they're no longer part of the Presbytery and they go and form their own thing, the Cumberland Presbytery denomination. And then they revised the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, 
What are the decrees of God? This is their uh, revision. The decrees of God are, the original said, His eternal purpose. They got rid of the word eternal. According to the counsel of His own will, whereby He hath foreordained to bring to pass what shall be for His own glory. Sin, being not for God's glory, therefore He hath not decreed it. God didn't decree sin. Now I want you to think about the earth-shattering significance of that statement. If, if God didn't decree sin, is God in charge of how sin works in the world? Is God really in charge? Is God governing it for His purpose? Isn't sin part of God's greater plan? Do you remember what Joseph says to his brothers? What you meant for evil, what's the next part? God meant for good. Is sin like this equal power with God? Can we really see God working all things together for good if God isn't governing all things? What about the cross? Do you remember what Peter said about the cross? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God? Or Judas himself? Judas, Jesus will say to Judas, the Son of Man will go as it has been determined. Betrayal is part of the plan. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. A large block of the Cumberland Presbyterians uh, will be, they're avid anti-Calvinists. They will be welcomed back into the Presbyterian fold over here in 1906. Right before Machen comes into the, he's already a princeton by this point, right before all these controversies emerge. How can you believe all those things and be Presbyterian? That's really what you should be asking yourself. Well, you can't, but they were. And so you have all these people who doctrinally are not Presbyterian at all, and they're in the fold of Presbyterianism. Now, what we're seeing as I try to describe these things, some have called Presbyterianism in the wild. Um, yeah, not everything's bad. Um, we, we also have Princeton being established. Um, and Princeton's being established really over against the loss of Harvard in 1808 to the Unitarians. I don't know if you know what Unitarians are. They're basically uh, ancient Arians. They don't believe Jesus is equal with the Father. Eventually, this group of people is, they're just going to adopt rationalism and maybe the idea that God is in everything, <clears throat> God is everywhere. Let's just encourage the spirit of the divine uh, in everything. They're going to reject the doctrine of hell. They're going to reject the substitutionary atonement of Christ and so forth. And Christian and Princeton was trying to counter these ideas. Are you depressed? Christ is always building his church. Satan is always causing trouble. And he's not just causing trouble out there. He's causing trouble in the church. Don't you see that when you read your New Testament? Well, yeah, there's the Princeton-Harvard uh, battle that's always unfolding. Charles Finney. I may not finish with Finney. I know I won't. I'll say some th a few things about Finney. Charles Finney is called America's greatest revivalist. Uh, I, I tried to get a picture that was maybe not as frightening of Finney. There are some pictures of Finney, like his the way his eyes look is that he looks possessed or something. It's strange. You can do your own uh, internet search on Finney. Uh, but Finney, while celebrated as the greatest American revivalist, uh, 
has really, really bad theology. Finney adopted that new divinity or new school thinking. The denial of man's depravity, regeneration, he argued, is not a miracle. It's not a work exclusively of the Holy Spirit. He made the cross of Christ just a moral example. And he denied, really, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Finney denies the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer. He denies that Jesus was a substitute for our obedience, that Jesus satisfied the penal sanctions or the curse of the law before God's justice. Finney believed that Jesus' death on the cross just portrayed public justice. Sin must be punished. But the effect of Jesus' death is just to deter, deter you from sin and to promote virtue. There's no actual propitiation, the satisfying of the wrath of God. And where's the honor to the justice of God in that? That He could be both, Romans is declaring, just and justifier of the one with faith in Jesus. On top of that, how are sinners to be justified? Well, Finney says it's through faith working, uh, faith working through love. In other words, you justify yourself, really. Your works, your obedience, your faith, your repentance, that saves you. And I hope you see the laying of the groundwork. You heard this quote last week from Dr. Wynn. What is liberalism, theological liberalism teaching? A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. Finney is eliminating the notion that of God's specific judicial wrath against our particular sin. He's eliminating the depth of sin. And he's certainly eliminating the work of Christ on the cross as actually accomplishing something for our salvation. Uh, is, is grievous. Uh, Charles Hodge is already saying, noting the, the theology of Finney being bankrupt. In Finney's preaching, Christ and His cross are practically made of none effect. The sinner is not urged under the pressure of guilt, of a sense of guilt, to go to Christ for pardon. So how shall we be acceptable to God, according to Finney? It's not by the work of Christ. It's not because of His blood and righteousness alone. Finney says, you're acceptable on the basis of your consecration of heart. Here's a direct quote. How am I acceptable to God? What must I do to be saved? That present, full, and entire consecration of heart and life to God and His service is an unalterable condition of present pardon of past sin and of present acceptance with God. How can I know my sins are forgiven? Only if your heart is entirely consecrated to God in His service. How am I accepted before God? Not, not on the basis of Christ's righteousness given to me as a gift through faith. I'm accepted because I have consecrated myself fully to God. I hope you see this is really troubling, brethren, because who then can be saved? If our justification rests on us being fully sanctified, we're all doomed. We're all going to hell. But when you minimize sin, and you minimize the justice of God, and you minimize the significance of the cross, salvation doesn't have to be a miracle. Amazing grace is no longer amazing. 
because it's something that lies within your power. Your will isn't bound to sin. It's only a negative influence that you can just throw off whenever you like it. You have the power in yourself to make yourself be born again. So it's not God taking a heart of stone and making a heart of flesh. God's part is just to influence you to change. But you change yourself. You instantly surrender to God. And this is where decision-based evangelistic preaching comes into full force in the early 19th, early 19th century and you start getting this language of full surrender. Have you heard that before? How many have heard full surrender? Terrible theology, brethren. Because it's a destruction of sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. It's totally dismissed. Well, that's pretty depressing. What's the hope that we have in light of this theological scene? There will be men who stand for the truth and who fight to the death over these theological matters. This seems like a good spot to stop. Uh, I'm going to come back next week, talk a little bit more about Finney. I've really got to hit the fast forward button to take you into theological liberalism as it's entering through those right before Machen so that you get a perspective of what people are thinking. And next week we'll have a little bit of blending of the doctrines of Schleiermacher and how they're being wedded to Presbyterian thought. And it, it won't be pretty. But hopefully you'll recognize, yeah, that just, that just ain't true. Uh, that can't be right. And uh, hopefully the Lord will allow us to see this is a really distressing climate into which Machen is coming on the scene. No wonder his words are so striking. Well, let me pray for us. Gracious Father, as we look at history, we can often be disturbed and unsettled by the evil of man inventing ideas of his heart rather than submitting himself to your word. Lord, we know that each one of us can be guilty of doing the same thing. Father, we pray that you would protect us against aberrant theological thought. Help us not to try to do theology in a vacuum as though it's just us and our thoughts rather than studying the history of the church and studying what your people have confessed from the Nicene Creed to the Apostles' Creed to the creeds of the Reformation. Lord, help us to be careful to know the truths of your word. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.